Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports from the viewpoint of an artist. I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and my guest today is Claude Johnson, founder of the Black Fives Foundation. The Black Fives Foundation's mission is to research, preserve, showcase, teach, and honor the pre-NBA history of African Americans in basketball. The foundation is doing incredible things around education and celebration of this history, and I've been following the Black Fives for just the last couple of years, which is really just a drop in the bucket with how long Claude has been doing this work and sharing these stories. I'm so grateful to feature it on Dear Adam Silver. And the trajectory and development of what is now the Black Fives Foundation is a great reminder of all the good that can be done, not just through our jobs, but through interests and subjects you find compelling that add to our shared discourse and push for change. So thank you, Claude, for your work and for joining me today. And thank you to you all for listening. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review Dear Adam Silver wherever you find your podcasts. Your support is very much appreciated. I just would love to sort of introduce the Black Fives Foundation to my audience and listeners and just give them an idea of what we're going to be sort of our starting point for today. Uh, so I'm sure you you start many interviews this way, but if you could just explain the process of how you sort of came to realize that there was this history of black basketball prior to the NBA that just was not being uh, discussed or or sort of celebrated in and addressed in a way that you thought it should be and how that how you kind of went forward once once realizing that and how you addressed it yeah thank you I mean so it's interesting because I was actually I was actually working at the league and the league was celebrating and it's this it's so funny because every time I say this in this very sentence it it kind of um introduces a a paradox right so i was working at the league in 1996 i was uh i was in in, in the licensing uh, area and in in what they called consumer uh, nba um consumer products division and so um it was the, they were celebrating their 50th anniversary in 1996 and I'll get back to that in a second. Um, but then they they ended up, um, and so you know, I, they, they published a book called the NBA Encyclopedia of Basketball, which was an 800-page book. And I looked at it, and it had three pages that were devoted to two teams: the New York Renaissance and two all-black teams, the New York Renaissance and the Harlem Globetrotters. But I liked history at the time I always I always have ever since ever since elementary school and I just um, had been looking and reading and studying this book by Arthur Ashe the tennis legend who wrote A Hard Road to Glory and in that book it's basically the 400 year from 1600s up to the present uh, journey of the African-American athlete uh, and there was a section on basketball, and in the basketball section, um, he talked about uh, several, you know, dozens of teams, or he named about a dozen teams that I thought, well, wait, these African American teams, how come they're not, how come nobody's talking about these teams? Like, one of them was called the Smart Set Athletic Club of Brooklyn, which was an, a, 
an all black um, athletic and social club that was formed in 1904. So I'm thinking, wait, 1904, like how is this possible that in 1904, there was this type of an organization and that we don't know about it. Um, and, and also I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And so I thought to myself, you know, being in licensing, I could see, I could see this name on a t-shirt one day um, and me walking down Flatbush Avenue with this, with this t-shirt on because I'm smart, I'm athletic and I live in <laughs> Brooklyn, you know, so the smarts at athletic club, you know, why not? Um, and, and then, you know, that led me to research and um, try to understand and ask people, well, where, 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 how do they, where do they even find this information? This was before the internet or before um, really, you know, a, a lot of things were digitized. And actually it was right around the time that the NBA launched NBA.com. So this was, it was really primitive. Everything was really, really primitive in those days in terms of virtual and online existence. And so um, I had to kind of learn, well, how to even do research? Like, how do you even find this information? And it, that journey started at that time for me because the Hall of Fame didn't know anything. The um, NBA, you know, our, you know, sort of historian didn't know anything. Um, people didn't know. And so I, I found myself at the Schomburg looking through Schomburg uh, um, Library uh, in Harlem, part of the New York Public Library System. And they, um, and I was in there looking at microfilm uh, you know, reeling through reels and reels, you know, like manually uh, on the screen and just, go, you know, it just took, I would spend weekends and uh, vacation days, holidays. I just spent all my time down there, hours at a time. I mean, this was like before COVID and before you, they were, there was a line for, for the resources down there. You know, you could just go down there and spend like so much time down there you'd pay a dime for every copy you made or whatever. And I was just sitting there with my notebook and I was in my laptop and I was just taking notes and, you know, found out that there were dozens of teams that played, um, you know, really from the early 1900s on. And I was looking at what they called the Negro press, all the black newspapers, they all had, um, you know, microfilm of, of those papers, the Afro Baltimore, Afro-American, the, the uh, Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier, New York Age, all, all those, Amsterdam News, et cetera. And I uh, discovered this entire parallel universe that just was all these teams, players, contributors, fans, journalists, um, a whole world. And there was so much of it that I just, sta I just started to um, you know, create um, the chronology and become interested in all the teams, um, and the and you know and uh, and really unearthing and trying to start telling the story of these individuals because uh, I sensed that there was it, it was just forgotten. The, the mere fact that nobody knew anything about it, you know, was uh, told me that it had it had been forgotten. So that's kind of that's kind of how that journey started. But what I also did is I called up, I called up my brother, um, Charles, who's a, a designer at the time. 
uh, and, and I said, this is really cool name that I, that I came across. Um, you know, what do you think? Like, does it, is this something that we could put on a t-shirt or something like it's just crazy because we were we were just sort of everybody was just you know he he owned a uh and ran a um sports design um consultancy like uh uh you know they it was called sports creative and basically they did design for you know in the sports industry uh so it could be um gear not 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 really graphic design but 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 um you know industrial design more um i remember that there was this uh device that could help your ankle from you know give your ankle support when you're running or something like that but he also had this eye for for design and a sensibility for design so i just called him and i said what do you think of this name this is kind of cool and then that sparked more and like what what are some of the other names and boy that's really interesting you wanted to find out what some of the other names were and so i found that there were just dozens of teams starting around 1904 and then using my licensing um, knowledge you know i just realized after a while that not only are these teams and histories because i was writing them down but also what about trying to see if we can trademark these names and so sure enough and I, when I say we, it was really, um, you know, me, but because really I was the one who was going to pursue it. By this time, Charles had um, quit the sports creative, not quit, but sort of dissolved that because he got this amazing position at another footwear, at an actual footwear company. And so then meanwhile, I'm still at the NBA, so we couldn't really focus on it full time. I remember us spending, you know, lots of time after hours, you know, just sure, trying to, the, yes. the, you know, the five to nine job, so to speak, you know, talking about this and then, um, you know, creating some uh, really primitive kind of uh, um, uh, trademark applications and then eventually, you know, just honing them down further, trying to get them right. And by this time, you know, then it was really, by this time, it was really a solitary effort. Um, and that's, that's kind of how, that's kind of how it started. It, it was a combination of, you know, f filing these marks, getting them right, um, do it, continuing the research, um, looking at more sources besides just those newspapers, because there's also street directories that are downtown at the municipal archive and then you know looking at individuals and going over to Brooklyn and and uh you know the main library and then other other cities Chicago etc and then also um you know there was so because because these it wasn't just that we were trying to get um the logos and the trademarks it's also how do you even create those so back to Charles because I was I remember calling him and and trying to learn teach myself Photoshop and Illustrator mm -hmm. um, and just trying to get the confidence of that because you know people don't realize like you don't just you're not just born to all of a sudden do something you know like you first have to try it and it may it may be like really weird or awkward if you haven't ever done that before and so you sometimes just need one person to say, no, you're going to be fine. It's, it's cool. You're on the right track.
and so that was that was Charles, you know, because he, when I started learning Photoshop and Illustrator, then there would just be this one or two questions that I would have, like, what about this? What about that? And then eventually I just took off with that, like on steroids, because then I, you know, I realized, I remembered actually that when I was a kid, I used to design like fictitious logos of teams and put them on my, you know, <laughs> note, notebook and stuff. Yeah. You know? um, and so that was, so, so then he reminded me that I used to do that. And then I was like, oh, wait, this isn't foreign to me at all. And then it suddenly, it suddenly made this whole other part of me that I had buried all these years blossom back out again, you know? And so that was really cool. Yeah, I love that part of the story, sort of remembering something that brought you a lot of joy, maybe however many years before that you forgot about, and it takes someone else reminding you how natural that was for, yeah. for you to realize that it's still it's still natural. It's just sort of uh, re-familiarizing yourself with that, with that, whatever it is. Well, and the thing is, when you get involved in corporate America, where you're wearing a suit and tie, and then even college, because at a certain point, when I was in junior high, I was um, I was taking almost all art classes, Abigail. Like, this is the thing you can relate to this. Yeah, I was taking wow. almost all art classes. Yeah, I was th- with Mrs. Dobbins at uh, Walden Hills High, high School in uh, in Cincinnati. Right. <laughs> and, and so this was a seven through 12 school. OK, so it was like some like it seemed like they were. 10,000 kids there, but it's probably like 3,000, but it's still really big. And so, um, you know, I was, I was taking, you know, sculpture and then I was signed up for ninth grade to take, um, you know, acrylic painting. And I, I, I visualized all these things that I was going to paint, you know, and then, then my family, we moved. And so, you know, we moved out of there and I was like, oh man, because I was going to be able to really focus on art in that, in that, uh, you know, in my um, curriculum. Um, And then when we went to the other, when we went, when we moved back to Massachusetts, I remember that now it was more of a track of, okay, you have to take math. And then you have to take, you know, science and what level of math are you going to be in? Is it going to be, you know, algebra or geometry? Is it going to be this or that? And then that puts you on a track. And so the track, because that school in Cincinnati was a junior high, you know, it was a uh, kind of like a a test in school. You have to to take a test to get in. Um, They were kind of like a college preparatory school. So when I got to the other place, I was automatically in a 10th grade level math and, and science even though I was only in ninth grade and so then that put me on this whole other track where all of a sudden people are saying hey have you ever thought about engineering and I was like no I don't even know what engineering sure. is Eventually, yes. so now I'm an engineer and then now I'm going to this technical school and you know Carnegie Mellon getting an engineering degree get out you know now I'm in, in sort of engineering, wearing a suit and tie and then I get into sale you know it's like IBM and now you're corporate. Now I, that's like each time I went further and I just completely forgot that I used to be like really in, into art and creating stuff and drawing and, and, um, and so, um, you know, so that's why I've, I, I have an affinity to, to your work even actually when you showed me some of those things that you were doing is really cool. And just the idea that, okay, it's okay to stick with that. So sometimes you just have to come back to it. So Charles reminded me of that. Yeah. And then I and then I just took off from there, 
Um, and then I start being able to do lots of, you know, kind of quite complex things, you know, that, that um, you know, with Photoshop and Illustrator and then just keep going from there. It's so, it, that's such a funny story uh, in just comparing it to my own because, you know, when I was in junior high, I wore nothing but huge basketball t-shirts from the basketball camps I went to and a backwards oh, wow. Stanford cap. And, you know, I wanted to play, I want to play knockout at every uh, break at every lunch. Uh, I just was like, so I, that was my thing. And, um, you know, I think I, once I got to high school, I mean, the art had always been a part of my life, but once I got to high school, just, uh, being interested in other things and, and going to all the games, but just not wanting to play, uh, myself, uh, for, for in high school and kind of like losing touch with, with basketball. And, and, you know, there's, there can be a lot of distractions when you're a teenager and even going into college and then realizing later on, like the same thing you realize, like, wow, this was something that I was such like defined my life, um, for such a long time. And, and to come back to it, uh, in my, in my twenties has been, you know, living in New York and getting to just see basketball games being played outside all the time. Um, and having it be like a real part of the place when I, when I lived there. And then also just realizing I could make artwork about it was like this ultimate homecoming (laughs) sort of that was that, that is just reminding me of, of what you're talking about with your brother being reminded of that of that thing yeah yeah and it's 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 probably a common it's probably a common thread with you know just because there's the realities of life and jobs and then you know it's not that easy to just uh yeah you just focus on whatever's going to get you to the next to the next level right so 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 i mean I, who knows what would have happened if i'd stayed we had stayed there right, taking this class versus that class you just you can't you can't go back and second guess but that was definitely part of what made um this whole journey with the black fives popular uh, uh possible i should say because um yeah i mean it so it was definitely a journey and it took a lot of little pieces like the logos and the logo designs and uh and uh you know, just the, the confidence of that and then the, the filings and and then all this time I was just writing and I created a website and then that led to that whole era where everybody was blogging for a while and so then blogs, you know, and writing about it and and so it was just a, a lot of pieces that went into it that finally, you know, kind of got us to, to this point, which we're still on the journey, but it's just a different, it keeps evolving. One thing that... Uh is so interesting to me about uh, the Black Fives Foundation is that it pushes back on sort of what I think are uh, the the white centric focus of our like collective narrative as far as like firsts and um, sort of times when the first basketball game was played, but who was able to play in that basketball game because of segregation and because of systemic racism. So I think that something that's so powerful that the Black Fives Foundation does is to to say, to, to push back on those sort of, um, those histories that we acknowledge, but that weren't inclusive. The narrative, um, that's what we aim to do is is change or correct the narrative that's taken place you know we we have i mean black teams were playing white teams routinely before 1910 in basketball and people just mm. don't know that now how could that be when 
in other parts of the country, certainly that wasn't true, but we have to be honest, right? And so like facts matter. So going back to uh, my initial thing with the paradox of, of 1996, if that's the 50th anniversary, then that means 1946 was the supposedly the start of the league. But any historian and anyone who just looks at the facts and the newspapers and the headlines, and it's all there. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of newspapers reported on it that that's just not when the NBA started. The NBA started, that's when the BAA started, <laughs> but but th there was also the NBL and they merged in 1949. So for whatever reason, and I'm surprised that, that you know, more people in media don't push back on this. They just go along with it. But for whatever reason, it, they, they keep, the league keeps celebrating 1946 when that just didn't happen. And the reason why it didn't happen, or the reason why I think they do that is because either they, they, they can't get themselves to correct the mistake they made in 1996 when they said it was the 50th sure. anniversary. Because <laughs> now, you know, now they have to reconcile that. Um, or, you know, they they can't they can't um, pick like if it's 1949 that it means that they left black players out since 1946. Well, why? But if it's 1946, they also left black teams out. <laughs> you know, so so and then if it's 1949, even in 1949 they left black teams out of the league. The, the best the best team in basketball at that point was an all black team. Right. This is the regardless um, of what race. The uh, New York so, Rens. Yeah, the, that's right. So there's some. It's weird, and uh, I mean, they. I think in the in this world that we're in right now, where facts are being challenged and mm -hmm. contemplated, I think the league. I think that they would set a marvelous example of saying, "Okay, wait, we got it wrong." We did it for whatever reasons we did it in 1996, but that was wrong. And so because of that, we're going to make a correction. Just like you reconcile your books, you make an adjustment in bookkeeping. It's called an adjustment. You, you go in and you change because, oh, you, 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 whatever, transpose the number the wrong way, transcribe the number. So you go in and you make an adjustment. You say, okay, it wasn't 1996. It was 1999. And that, you know, and so in three, mm -hmm. it's not this year, it's not next year or whatever. It's not the 75th anniversary. It's actually the 72nd anniversary. We have to wait three <laughs> more years, <laughs> you know, it's, it yeah. seems like it would be easy to do, right? Nobody would care. Uh, the only people that sure. would care is the old timers and the media and people would be like, wait, but it's the right thing to do. I do think that like what you're saying about an institution saying like we got it wrong like a huge powerful um in just a institution that has that pulls so much you know has so much weight um to to say we we need to revisit this uh would would just set such an example which is something i think that the nba could could do on for many things just as far as setting an example for how you can evolve how you can change just because there's been a rule for 30 years that you need to stand for the national anthem doesn't mean that there has to be that rule. <laughs> That's right. Well, and speaking of rules, there used to be a rule that if the ball went out of bounds, 
the team that got to it first would get possession. <laughs> so that was like a rule so like for a really long time. Yeah. That's why they that's why they put a cage around the court. Right. It was dangerous for ladies, you know, with hats sitting in the you know on the sidelines. Fans, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so so the thing is, I mean, there's that, and then there was a rule at one point where. Um, you know, there was a jump ball after each made field goal, um, and, you know, and then there was a rule where you could, uh, you couldn't shoot for a field goal. You couldn't shoot the ball if you had already dribbled. And that rule was, was um, right. ironclad until the mid 1910s. Like you couldn't yeah, James change Harden, that rule. James Harden <laughs> you know, would not have thrived changed. in that uh, setting. <laughs> that rule would have really killed some of his, <laughs> his uh, stats. <laughs> right. You know, and, but, but Steph Curry or somebody that was a spot up shooter sure. <laughs> um, would thrive, you know, and what it did is it encouraged passing. So in other words, you could do whatever, you, you know, it just, it just eliminated isolation basketball. But, you know, then there was another rule where you could dribble with two hands, catch the ball, dribble it again, catch it, dribble it again, catch it, and just back your way down towards the basket and then just turn around and score. So can you imagine like Shaq could yeah. do with two hands? <laughs> Right. I mean, that was a rule, you know? So, so I mean, rules change. Rules can change. The 24-second clock, all these things mm, can change. Absolutely. You make an adjustment, and then you, you know, just like you can make an adjustment in on the court, you can make an adjustment off the court. You can make an adjustment with the way you, the way you see things, Um you know, so I, that's that's our that's our take on it. You know, yes, and those I feel like those those rules, those technical rules about the game, are sometimes. I, I mean, I don't know how easy or hard or what the pushback is in those situations, but sometimes it's like those are easier than like sort of owning up to uh, a, a sort of miscalculation or a a part of the league's history that isn't morally right or isn't acknowledging the correct hist or accurate history. Um, that's yeah. like, that's a little bit trickier. Yeah, well, it, it is. It's trickier in life to own up to something. It's trickier in life to apologize. I'm not saying there's an apology needed here, but sure. it's just trickier in life to reconcile right. and to just correct, you know, correct your course and, and do it right. And, and people look to organizations like the NBA, you know, which is, which is, you know, from the outside looking in near perfect, you know, they're doing everything the right way. Um, but they, you know, but they, it's, it's not fair to, to mischaracterize, uh, you know, facts like that's just the bottom line. And so, so just on that note, we, we, um, you know, this, this partnership that we, we just announced with Puma, where that includes apparel, um, and footwear, you know, we, we list, we list key dates on that apparel, uh, directly on that apparel for the for this exact reason is that facts and dates really do matter and we want people to understand that you know when you're wearing this 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 gear you're not only rocking the gear which is great but also people are saying what is that so it starts a conversation and then they're saying what does it say on the back and then they're, they're reading these dates and there are these little uh video vignettes that go go with those dates so that people can just in a very, you know, literally 15 or 20 second sound bite, understand quickly what's happening, you know, with, right. with that, with that date. So, 
Um, so we're, we're excited about this, this partnership as well. I know it is a really big deal and I, I want to address some things, um, about it. So yeah, I also want to congratulate you. It's such a cool, uh, I mean the, 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 the actual clothes, the clothing and like the wear is so well executed and so beautiful. Um, and it's just, it's a really exciting, uh, collaboration, um, I want to, so one thing that I just made the connection uh, with, just reread your book about the Alpha Physical Culture Club. Yeah. It's a really uh, wonderful story that I think through the specifics of that story actually speaks to larger larger issues uh, by getting so detailed around these this particular basketball team right. that came from yes. this club. That's right. That's right, Abigail. Black people who were in the United States um, you know, either came from the South or they came from um, the West Indies and, and a little bit more rarely they came from Africa, but it was not as common. Usually they came from the West Indies. So there, there were West Indians and then there were uh, people who came from the South, like for the most part. So when these individuals got to New, you know, cities like New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh, uh, Washington, um, there was a natural tendency to connect through their affinity, their background, their kinship, um, from what you know, their their countryhood, and so um, so the West Indians, you know, stuck together in New York. The people from North Carolina and from you know stuck together. The African Americans from Georgia, stuck, you know what I mean. So they, because that was all you knew, and so sure. the way what, what was interesting was that these these games. Were, would become so that's where people got together because mm -hmm. with without social media you you didn't you you couldn't reach out to to everybody from South Carolina you know like from where you were from you just had to say okay spread the word we're going to have this we're going to have there's going to be a game and and people you know would show up at this game and it would that's why they had music and 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 dancing afterwards um and and it it was important because it, there were different kinds of organizations. There were there were uh, pr primarily you'll see from that book there were um, really West Indians controlled in a way black basketball in the earliest days. Uh, so those brothers, the Norman brothers from Jamaica, um, but there were also uh, uh, individuals from from uh, St. Thomas uh, and, and what was called the Danish Virgin Islands, Danish West Indies back then, which is now the Virgin Islands, um, and, from, and from elsewhere. And so uh, they came together and just said, okay, look, we're, we have to figure out a way to be more healthy because there were, there were terrible mm -hmm. conditions in inner cities. And one way to do that would be just to, by example, to show that, you know, we're, we're going to, we care about this. Um, and, and so it, it was, uh, you know, there were a lot of, it, it didn't just come naturally. It wasn't just somehow overnight people, you know, snapped their fingers and, and there were these leagues and games right. and, and stuff like that. I mean, there was, there was a certain amount of pushback, um, there were organizations that didn't have resources, but they, you know, and, and a lot of the re, a lot of the 
the basketball back then was affiliated with churches or with, um, you know, what you would call probably uh, middle class or upper class um, African-American culture at the time, uh, because they had the resources to at least, you know, get, you know, collect funds from their members um, and then rent a gym and, and so on, you know, and, and so, uh, so it was very much grassroots, but it was also, and then it just grew from there. It just grew so popular. It started with 100 people watching a game, then 200 people, you know, then 400 yeah. people a couple of years later. Suddenly there's 1,000 people. A couple of years later, there's 5,000 <laughs> people, you know. And so, like, it, that's when there was this pressure um, to, you know, you know, to, 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 uh, install or or um, develop the professionalism side of it, you know, because there's so much so started to be some money right. involved. And and I I love I think also in in the book uh, you mentioned that people would there would be dances before mm-hmm. and after games um, sometimes that the uh, you know the the spectators could could dance and then watch the game and then uh, their you know music would be playing and they could dance again and that sounds so much better to me than just like getting in a line to wait on an escalator to leave right. a packed arena right away uh, just this idea that that um, it's not just about the basketball it is about the coming together and we get to do that in many ways and that's such a beautiful part of what you're talking about with with their just it's it's an event to go to and it, it combined different ways of interacting yeah definitely and th- that's for that reason abigail it was really you know for the, the the coming together was the more important part and the reason that was important was because somebody from brooklyn had had never even talked to or met somebody from washington dc so you we right. you know they wouldn't have they wouldn't have known you can read the newspaper there was a black newspaper you know in these different cities sometimes there were more, was more than one um, but you didn't know, like, what's going on? What's it like? How are the jobs? What's, what, you know, how, how, uh, what's the quality of life? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, sure. what, what are you, what are you hearing? You know, what's happening? And, and so, um, these teams, when they invite what the, the, you know, the, the custom was that you would invite a team from another town and it was your responsibility as the home team to pay for their trip, pay for their trip, put them up, um, pay for their room and board accommodations and win or lose to um, be their host at a party where you're celebrating (laughs) them. That's what, see, that's what people don't realize. Like when you you host a team, that's what it means. Like you literally host a team. You have a, you throw a party and all the people. So if you're inviting Howard University up to, up to uh, Brooklyn, then you get all the Howard grads in Brooklyn and they welcome their Howard, you know, team and, and, and then, and then they, well, you know, and then they have, they had sister organizations. So every, every male team had a female uh, counterpart and cohort and they would all, it was their responsibility to host um, the other team yeah. with dinner so and with cool. a, you know, a party. Right. <laughs> so like, imagine, so like, well, and what's cool about that is in a way the NBA not necessarily the league, but players are like that. Players are players compete um, as uh, hard as they can against one another. But then after the game, 
they're exchanging jerseys. They're just saying, Hey, you know, what are you doing? What's going on? And, you know, like it's, in other words, it's yeah. always been that way. And it, it, it hasn't in, in some ways it hasn't changed. Yes, I, it was so funny recently when the NBA had put out just, I, I guess they thought that players might be hugging too much after games, and that was something maybe that was spreading the virus. Uh, so they wanted players to sort of touch each other less uh, post-game. And I was thinking, like, that's one of the best parts of the game is afterwards, like, they're in this really intense battle. Maybe your team just lost by two points. I mean, I just saw it uh, Where when maybe it was – uh, Tuesday night, but it was just, it was a really close game and they're just hugging each other right after. I mean, unless something happened and someone's upset, but like the norm is like this wonderful coming together around center court and it's really beautiful. And I was like, don't take that away, NBA. Like, I want the players to be safe, but I was like, if any, like, you know, if you can't have the hugs, maybe we shouldn't be playing. <laughs> well, I, I would argue that there's more exposure to air droplets you know, underneath the basket in the paint mm, fighting sure. for a loose ball than there is when you're hugging, you know what I'm saying? Right. Oh, you can at least hold your breath for that quick second or something like that, you know? Um, Absolutely. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not an expert. I'm not going to challenge that, but you're, no. I think you're right. You know, people, <laughs> you know, once you're safe, you're safe. But I understand, you know, we're trying to, got to try to do the best you can. Yes, and I think I'm interested about when it became when you decided that the educational component, you know, creating this this archive that people could access and learn about the Black Fives uh, and about this uh, history of black basketball before the NBA, uh, I, I'm just wondering, like, when that started to, to really become clear that that was going to be a, a part of a part of this. Well, really, when we uh, when when I started creating jerseys which was a whole nother story because i was like shipping them out of the garage to these different retail locations around the country out of my garage um what would happen and it's at a certain point the uh i started getting calls from stylists for music videos basically and the reason i started getting calls from stylists is because um uh the the wardrobe, the head of wardrobe at BET called me based on an ad that he saw that, that I ran. I ran like one or two ads in, in Slam. Oh, bless you. Thank you. It's definitely um, spring. <laughs> yeah. I'm sneezing a lot. No, so the, the, I got a call one day from the wardrobe director at BET, um, and which is down on 57th Street, and he had seen an ad in Slam Magazine for these jerseys, these throwback jerseys that I was producing. And so um, I, I, I ran down there with a bunch of jerseys wow. and then, you know, they got onto BET on the, the diff these different shows, um, like especially Big Tigger in the basement, which was a show, uh, the, the, uh, I forget what the station was, um, the, not VH1. Uh, MTV? Uh, M MTV, yeah. and. Um, Anyway, so, you know, so that, so based on that, teachers were calling. Some teachers would see this, you know, because regular people would see this and just on, you know, out there and be like, hey, can you come? I saw this or I heard about this or I saw something, you know, could you please? Um, and there were, there were a few articles that had come out by, 
you know, just at the very beginning, Howard University did an article, their, their newspaper and a couple others. And so I would get calls from school teachers saying, can you come talk to our, our classroom about this history? And of course, I, I would say yes, if I could, you know, I would go wherever. But and it was almost always at my expense because the only reason it wouldn't be at my expense is if this there was like for example a private school that that wanted me to come out to Milwaukee to to talk to their kids about something mm-hmm. so, and I think I think they paid for the ticket or something like that but that was always that was nice when they did that I, I might have done it anyway if I had had the if I had been able to fund it like that you know so locally here whether it was going to Brooklyn or Harlem or someplace I would just go and so. Um, I always knew that there was this part of it because I really enjoyed that part. And I would never ask the teachers, the school teacher, hey, you know, well, here's my budget or whatever, because it just didn't seem right to charge a school where they're already just trying to raise money to buy pencils or sure, something. Sure, yes. Know, have me come in, you know, which I was glad to do. And that, that's when I realized this is the part of it that I really like, the teaching part. Um, you know, my, my dad was a, was a college professor. And so, um, you know, that may have influenced me to want to be the person who's providing this information in a helpful way, you know, to teach. Um, And so then that, so I always kind of put, set aside some funds that I thought would be kind of just like this community fund or something. And it was never really properly funded because I'm, I was so focused on, you know, selling the t-shirt, right? And, and if you're a company, you got to stay in the black and, you, you know, got to sell more and is it the right price and do you have the right styles? And it's just a whole other effort. And um, then I realized, okay, the time came for me to really go into this as a, as a nonprofit. And the, re- what, what, the catalyst for that was that uh, the Barclays Center, contact, somebody from the Barclays Center contacted me and said, um, can we uh, use some of your photos or do you have any um, Brooklyn related vintage African-American basketball photos? Because they were trying to connect with the community at the time. And so I put together a compilation of six or seven photos that they then um, enlarged to life size and made into m- murals that they then they're permanently installed in the concourse. Oh, okay. And so when that came out, like when they did that, that's that's at that moment that I also um, switched from being Black Fives Incorporated to Black Fives Foundation. And it was not just switching the name, it was also creating the entity that would then be the nonprofit. And so you have to go and you have to incorporate and you have to uh, have articles of incorporation and a board and, and a quorum and, and um, you know, those, those, kinds, those kinds of things. And then, and then you also, then what I did is I, I, I transferred and assigned all of the assets from Black Fives Inc., which included the intellectual property logos, but also, you know, any funds that were in bank accounts and any um, artifacts, I donated all those to the nonprofit. And so that, and then, you know, we applied for the, for the 501c3 and got that the following year. But that exact same moment was when 
we got approached by 47 brand, which is, uh, a, you know, a, uh, an apparel company, apparel and headwear company. And the, so for about the next three years, three or four years, we, um, you know, we, we were the, we got some, some royalties from them, um, that helped fund some of the operational costs of, of this endeavor. Right. Um, and just to get back to to these teams that were created uh, in the early 20th century, just they're so much a part of my interaction with the Black Fives Foundation has been through the photographs that you have collected and archived just because they are I mean, they're so rich and there's so many of them and they're just seeing these these players in these uniforms and um, just the, the the formalness and the photos and and just this sort of. Uh, time traveling that the photographs allow for to give you a real visual of what things were like then. Um, that's just one of my favorite parts. And there's there's a lot of richness in in the the small details like we're talking about with the 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 dancing and just like you know you have scans of tickets which are so interesting to look at and the photographs like it just creates even though this happened you know it feels like a long time ago. Uh, there's just a lot of visual, rich visual information there to kind of like build off of. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. And each of those artifacts has its own story. And so one of the things I'm really excited about is that Puma has um, in this partnership is going to be the presenting sponsor of our online museum that, that, uh, that we're gonna develop and or that we're developing. And we're calling it a virtual vault. And what's going to what it's going to be is, you know, we've over time, I've been able to collect these different artifacts, which include those photographs and also pamphlets and ticket stubs and ephemera and game programs and as well as gear and um, and objects and, and 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 things like that. And so. And we have maybe a thousand, close to a thousand of those items that are that are in our archives. Um, but what what we've never been able to do is showcase them enough. Like we we do have, we've had you know great opportunity to um, exhibit some of them at a time. So we had a pretty big, uh, I, I think, well it was big um, exhibition at the New York Historical Society uh, in nineteen in uh, twenty. Uh, 2014 um, and it was a four month long exhibition and it got a lot of exposure uh, including a full page um, review in the New York Times Museum section which is just amazing because it's unheard of um, and then we also had a segment of our artifacts on display at the at the LBJ Presidential Library sh shortly after that and now there's a section, some, some of our artifacts on loan to the Museum of the City of New York because they have an exhibition on uh, the history of basketball in, in the city. And so, um, so we, we but, but those, are, those, are, those aren't continual. And I had always thought, well, why can't we have a traveling exhibition that goes around to different places like HBCUs and college campuses and everywhere else but this summer and also through the pandemic, it just became clear, right? That um, we're not gonna have a traveling exhibition. And, and then, but in a, in a 
in an unusual or maybe fortuitous way, like now it became clear that virtual is the new reality. Mm-hmm. And so even more, I thought, hey, you know, let's figure out a way to display these um, to more people virtually. And also let's take each of these items and create lessons around them that a teacher could then import into her classroom his or her classroom. And so I thought, okay, the way to do that would be with this platform that we, we already have. It's an internal platform where we, we ha- you know, uh, we're working with a company called Heritage Works and they are our um, uh, archival services provider. Okay. After the New York Historical Society packed up that exhibition which was about 300 items Mm -hmm. um they did it in such a nice way that that i thought wow maybe i should be doing this you know because i brought them these these bins of you know like plastic bins (laughs) and the first thing they said was like well you know these are airtight but the thing about airtight bins is that it does keep moisture out but it also keeps moisture in Right. And so that's when I started to realize, okay, wait, you got to put, it has to be climate controlled, the right temperature, the right moisture in the air, um, you know, all, all the circulation of air, all these other things. And so, uh, and at that time we, we got a grant, our first grant from the NBA Players Union Foundation. And uh, so I looked at those funds and I thought, okay, l- let me use s- some of these funds um, and by the way, that that grant helped us continue to where we are today. So I still give them incredible praise um, for uh, and gratitude um, for for what uh, for what they uh, for what they did at that time, and specifically uh, Michelle Roberts and Sherry Deans, uh, who 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 headed that uh, that organization, heads that organization still, and also the. Um, the uh, players, um, the executive committee, which had to approve uh, this grant um, a- at the time, and so without that, we wow. we wouldn't have we wouldn't be here today, right, to where we are. So, um, having said that, w- so I looked online and I was trying to find, you know, uh, like acid-free envelopes for this yes. and <laughs> totally, you know all this kind of yeah. stuff right i was looking and you know if you start searching you see gaylord and you see some of these other kinds of materials that anybody that's in art or whatever you kind of get a sense of oh yeah I, i've heard of those names and i came across heritage works and so I, I sent them a, a little form letter that said hey you know i'm this is what i'm up to this is what i'm interested in like how much would it cost whatever and so the the ceo called me a man named Keir Walton, and he, um, we had a conversation. He said, "Okay, I'll get back to you." And so then they, he came back to me like a few days later or a week later, and he said, "Well, we decided we want to do this for you pro bono." And so, wow. so because we want to not only give back, but we really believe and we 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 love what you're doing. And so then I was like, "Wow, really?" And so you know, I took I, one day I drove. Uh, you know, rented a, a, a truck and put all this stuff into the back and drove down to Atlanta, <laughs> you know, from, because that's where they're, that's where they're, and if you, if you've ever seen um, that last, that episode, the last scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they have that giant warehouse 
and it's got like all these artifacts and things. Well, that's a little bit reminiscent of what they look like, except to get in, you have to put your fingerprint in a scanner, and and it's like need, need oh, yeah. to know, and only you know only only you can't just wander in there. Like it's very very um, secure. Um, you can't even leave. You can't even come into the building without um, waiting in an well, area yeah. where, where you, you know and 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 uh, getting checked in and, and everything. You can't just right. walk in there. So anyway, my my point is that they scanned, digitized, tagged labeled um photographed every single item and there's still every time we get a new item you know that's what it goes through a process um and uh there's a registrar you know who makes sure that everything is accounted for and then anytime we have um a request for an exhibition uh they handle getting the items to them uh, making sure that there's insurance and that there's proper a proper carrier um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that can work with the registrar at the other end. Um, uh, you know, the, you know, like the, uh, LBJ, all the presidential libraries are run by the um, national archives and records administration. So we're dealing with as professional archivists, you know, from these other organizations. And so, um, so, so, uh, so we have, and they put all of this onto an internal portal so that we can search mm -hmm. by okay give me all the ticket stubs or give me all the items you have from 1937 or give me all the things on you know john isaac's uh, player or a team and um it's very it, it what's good about it is now you can now we can actually manage it's a lot easier to manage all the this bins of information you know artifacts that i used to have um and but what we want to do with that is now, you know, create a portal that's outward facing to the uh, to the public, right? Where we would have the ability to to show exhibitions, um, but online. So in the month of April, we could have, or May, or June, or, or for the first two weeks of whatever. Like this is Women's History Month, so I would expect that a year from now, the first two weeks of March might be devoted to artifacts having to do with uh, black women's basketball teams. And, um, you know, and uh, from that period, um, or maybe it's the whole month, right? And it, so we, we're not gonna show all thousand items all at once, all the time, this is too much to go through. But if we do it in a way that's carefully curated and mm -hmm. thoughtful um, and fun and exciting, then that gives, that will give the ultimate goal for me is to have teachers download these modules so that they could, uh, so that their students could choose from among different choices when they do an assignment. Right. Um, and, and, and then we can measure, uh, okay, uh, is what we're doing effective? Is it, uh, you know, what, how many students, how many people have seen this? How many people have shared it? It's not enough to just say, oh, yeah, we got, you know, 22 likes. Um, what we want to know is, well, what did you do with that? Or how did you feel? Or where did that mm -hmm. go? Um, and just keep going further. Because even though we called for Black history education reform, mandatory Black history, K through 12, all the way up and on beyond, this summer we called for that was one of the things we called for but we're not accountable for all of that the only thing we can control is 
that we can certainly try to disseminate black basketball history um, into educational ranks. And all nonprofits crave for the opportunity to be able to measure what they're doing. And so this might be this might be a way to do that. Sure. And and I think, you know, even though you're mentioning that what you can offer is this is this educational um, material about black uh, basketball that's also connected to so much other history of our country uh, just by just by looking at this one specific thing it opens up all these other you know it demands all these other questions and you learn about other history as well and I think that's part of the power of it that's it you just nailed it uh, Abigail because see the one of the thing one of the reasons why why we just realized this summer before this summer, I was basically, you know, look at these, look at these pioneers, aren't they great? Let's give them a round of applause. Like, that's what a lot of people, you know, were. After this summer, it's like, well, wait, why is there even a Black Fives Foundation? Why right. was there even segregated basketball? And mm-hmm. so if we're going, and then I started thinking, well, how do we use this? So it's applied history, right? I've always liked that term. And I, I've always used that term to describe what we aim to do. And so our slogan is make history now. And it's a, it's a trademark slogan and you'll see it on the apparel that, that Puma has created, but also other things that we do. And the reason for that is not only to say, hey, let's bring this, let's bring this history forward, but also what do we do with it? And um, in this case, when we start asking those questions and starting those conversations, it's the only way we'll be able to address uh, systemic racism, white supremacy, and these uh, sort of uh, socialized, um, deeply rooted um, issues, unless people begin to be able to talk about them. And if this, if this is a, an introduction or, or a pathway towards that, then, then, then that's what we aim to do. So, and I'll give you an example. So we could have a ticket stub from the New York Renaissance and then we could say, okay, here's their, here, this is one game, but here's their schedule for the season, for that season. And now um, pretend you're the road manager. Here's a green book. Where did they stay? Where do you think they should stay and why? And so now that, that student can say, okay, wow, well, this is, they went on, they, you know, 150 games, um, you know, 140 of them were road games and they had to go to Indiana and upstate New York and Illinois and Wisconsin. And then they went over to, uh, you know, back to Ohio and then they went to Pennsylvania and then they can, you know, so all these places, even though it was, I mean, you would think that it was in the north somehow it would be fine but you still had Mm -hmm. jim crow Mm -hmm. and so it was in the middle of the great depression it was in the middle of jim crow how did a team an all-black team go to an all-white town win against their local (laughs) best all-stars right and then leave safely and get invited back why how what what's happening what's going on you know, let's look sure. at that because it, it, it deserves an, an, a conversation. And so once you start talking about it, then you start to say, oh, okay, 
it then opens up other I'll leave it up to yeah. teachers, you know, or educators to sort of say, okay, let's take this a step further. Um, but the part we can do is is drop them into that, mm -hmm. in, you know, in a way that, you know. Yeah. So that's that's what that's what that's what our goal is with with the artifacts and and you know the educational part of our of our uh, of our mission. Right. And I, you, you, um, I wanted to mention the make history now. That was definitely one of my questions. So I'm so glad you brought it up. There was something else that there was another interview I had looked at of yours where you, um, uh, let me just find the, the quote that I put down or when I tried to quote you. Um, ah, okay. So you mentioned history doesn't change it. What we do change can with it changes so let me read exactly what history doesn't change it's only what we do with it that can change the conversation um or something like that <laughs> feel free to yeah. say it how you said it but just that that you know i think that um it sometimes you know history is so much alive in so many of the the issues that we're facing right now as a country and uh it can seem maybe overwhelming to some to start addressing these issues like through history, but also through the Black Fives Foundation, it's like this one aspect of of our history that we then, like I said, like access all these other points and 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 things like that. And I just think that like this idea that like we are sort of like responsible for how the history is moves forward and how it's handled. And that was just such a wonderful thing, thought that you had that you shared that I just want to touch on here too. No, you're right, and and thank you for for bringing that up and for finding that. Um, uh, no, I mean, we we everyone would agree that history doesn't change; it happened. Whatever happened, happened. You can spend a great deal of effort obscuring it. You can spend yes. a great deal of effort changing it, like like the 1946 to 1949, but but it didn't. But just because you say there's no gravity or there's no electricity, you know, you, I can't see it. <laughs> it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so, um, so, so the same thing with history, you, 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 you can say whatever you want, but eventually the newspaper articles, um, the information, uh, you know, it's all there for people to see. And the same thing goes for either positive or negative. So if you, so, we we can't really go back we're not trying to change history we're just trying to say hey what can we do with this history um you know and if we can inspire people if we can uh let people understand that you know there's a trajectory you're part of this this journey uh you, you know basketball brings us together we're part of you're connected to this history um uh, you know, you were there uh, talking specifically about African-Americans involved with the game. Um, we were there at the beginning. We didn't take over somehow after the NBA was formed. We, we were there, you know, figuratively, we, you know, on the Mayflower, you know what I'm saying? The, May, the, mm -hmm. the basketball Mayflower, we were there. Yes. We were on that <laughs> ship, <laughs> you know. Uh, there weren't necessarily many of us or maybe we had to have a different sail on a different boat. But the point is, you know, we were, we were, we hit land at the same time, roughly the same time. So, um, you know, th that's important to know because 
when you're talking about stewardship of the game, it's not somebody else's game. It's our game. It's all of our game. So that means we all have a vested interest and a stake. And it doesn't like the, the Sometimes there's a a little bit of a sense of, you know, do I belong here in this game or is like somebody else created it or whatever? But no, like we, all of the innovations, all of the challenges, all of the competitiveness, the the, the hardships, the uh, the uh, jubilation, um, and 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 progress that's happened in basketball has happened for all of us. And so um, the NBA can't somehow define basketball. Basketball is bigger than the NBA. Basketball is bigger than the NCAA. Basketball is bigger than you know, street ball or any one of those organizations, high school, AAU. Mm-hmm. So anybody that tries to somehow take over or define what basketball is, that's just, that's been tried. <laughs> it doesn't work and it's never going to work because it's such a beautifully conceived sport. And, um, you know, there's room for everyone and there's room for innovation from, from everyone. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's lasted, you know, all this time, of course, there's going to be constantly tweaks and adjustments for depending on what, what the organization is or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we've, that's what our original, you know, my original concept of, of this was, um, that we're, we're all, we all belong. We're we're not outsiders. Nobody is an outsider here. There's different pieces of this history that everybody has experienced their own way, but um, we we should never uh, let somebody try to insinuate that somehow we were uh, we were, we were allowed to play. Mm-hmm. Um, we we weren't allowed to play. You, the league had to have us play because we were we were the best we were the best players. That's simply just, that's just a fact. So, um, and, and that's subtle, but I think it's powerful. It's, it's so powerful. Um, almost so powerful that I, I don't want to say anything in response to what you're <laughs> saying because it, it, it's just, um, and can, and can be applied to so many other situations. I think also like, um, just this idea of like, uh, you know, the NBA having was a white institution when it first came into being like that, it, that that does not define black basketball or the beginning of it, that the integration of that league does not um, does not validate black basketball as a thing, <laughs> that there's this right. rich history beforehand that 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 really um, there's so much there. Yeah, I mean, black basketball was thriving almost 50 years before the NBA. So it's not it's not the NBA that somehow magically opened doors and did anybody a favor. Um, you know, and then we have to remember that there, there was also, uh, you know, that we're talking about a period of time during which many African-Americans, most African-Americans, the African-American community was trying really hard to prove 
we were equal. And this goes back, um, you know, to the 1800s. But uh, the real issue, which we now all know, isn't that we should be proving we're equal. It's that white people should be wondering, why don't we accept that they're equal, that we're equal? Why, why don't we accept that? And so right. um, that so it's not a question of are we equal. The the question is why why don't they accept that? And um, that new way of looking again, it's very subtle, but uh, it's playing out in, for example, the backlash, a little bit of backlash for those who were paying attention when Major League Baseball said, "Hey, Negro mm-hmm. Leagues is now officially the stats are part of MLB history," but if you look at that a little bit closer and you say, well, wait a minute, if pre Jackie Robinson didn't include black players, then shouldn't there be an asterisk next to that? Because, because really, if you're now saying that those stats are valid, then that means that all the pre Jackie Robinson stats were invalid. Mm -hmm. And if you're saying that, then who is the one setting the standard? Like, why are we saying that the MLB is the standard when they had an illegitimate league, arguably, before Jackie Robinson? Because it left out black players. Right. So so that it should really be Negro Leagues saying, hey, wait, no, we're the ones accepting that you guys are. You know, right. official. Yeah. And like, where's the I mean, asterisk? Like, should the asterisk go next to anything MLB related rather than uh, just because to show that like they, yeah, like you're saying was a, um, was, I forget the word you used, but just was not a league that was inclusive. So it was not an accurate portrayal of the best baseball players in the country. Yeah. So, so, so to me, I've always said, you know, pre Jackie Robinson, any record of that should have an asterisk. Um, you know, just like arguably people would say those couple of years when Michael Jordan left left basketball, those should have asterisks. <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, I'm just saying, you know, some people say that. I'm not saying I, I agree. But Akeem Olajuwon, like, I don't that. want him to have an asterisk. <laughs> That's true. You can't put an asterisk next to some of these, some of these guys. But you know what I'm saying. So sure. I mean, people, th- that's the fun of, of having that argument. But w- with regard to that, and, and I just think that um, – yeah, no, nobody, nobody let black players do 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 anything. You know, black players were trying to um, break through, but they they also proved that um, there was a thriving business and a business model. And if it weren't for if it weren't for Jim Crow and and if it weren't for the oppression and so on, um, there probably would have been a league, just like there was a Negro leagues of of uh, of, uh, of of baseball. Um, and, and so, you know, th- those things didn't happen, but, um, but it's important to rec, it's important to understand what, like how this all went down because otherwise, um, and, and again, the league itself, um, at the very beginning was struggling financially because they didn't get enough spectators to pay, to pay, uh, for tickets to make the league, um, to, to, you know the business model wasn't quite working. For for people that don't know, um, part of the reason the NBA succeeded is because they used hockey arenas that were you know off season or even during the season um, that were sitting empty, uh, like Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, 
Um, and so, uh, but they were, they, ba basketball wasn't really, you know, the most popular game out there. And so they were trying to figure out how do we get, how do we get fans in seats? And so they formed a collaboration with Abe Saperstein of the Harlem Globetrotters to schedule, um, schedule the uh, double headers so that the, the globe charters would be the first game see because mm -hmm. the globe charters were super popular the wrens were super popular they were known as the best teams um and people wanted to see them and they wanted to see this novelty so abe saperstein said okay we're gonna we'll and this was really a, a collaboration that he started with the baa even in 1946 um as being the front end of a double header right um and that brought in so many fans that it overflowed into the end into the baa and then the nba game so the the nba owes a, a big debt at the beginning to to uh abe saperstein and the globe charters but and that is also part of the paradox or the 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 conundrum that the league faced because when they first, when certain owners first started saying, Hey, we want to hire black players. Um, like, uh, like the Knicks wanted to sign, uh, Sweetwater Clifton, not, not Clifton. Mm -hmm. Um, the objection was from the owners that were afraid because Abe Saperstein said he was going to withdraw from that collaboration and they would have to be on their own. They would no longer have the, the Globetrotters to help them at the front end of doubleheaders to bring in fans. So there was fear, financial fear. And some of the owners uh, just outright were against bringing in black players because they, they, they feared that. But it was actually Ned Irish, uh, who was the owner of the um, New York Knicks, and they were the most powerful franchise. They were in the BAA. And he threatened to just leave and go back to barnstorming on his own if he wasn't allowed by the other owners to sign uh, Clifton. And so, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, the beginning of, um, the, uh, you know, a, a breakthrough and a trend. Um, soon after that, the Celtics <clears throat> um, drafted um chuck cooper and so he was the first drafted um uh clifton was the first signed and then earl lloyd who was drafted later uh in a later round by the washington capitals ended up being the first black player to play mm -hmm. okay um yeah so those are the three but there was also hank dazoni who was also signed as the fourth player that year and he signed with the st louis hawks but people don't really talk about him because he it was the racism was so harsh that he decided to quit after five games wow and just go go back to harlem where he felt like well not only am i around friends but i, I could make just as much money you know he he, he ran a proprietorship there and he, he did he had other business interests um you know so yeah so that definitely you know there's some twists and turns there um the league when it again one of the reasons i'm just speculating but one of the reasons that they might not want to acknowledge 1949 is that 
when they did form this league, um, they, they formed it with 17 teams, which is a really awkward number when it comes to scheduling. But they could have easily just added the New York Renaissance as the 18th team, right. <laughs> but they didn't. And so why not? Yes. You know, so there's a lot of shenanigans that went went into that, and it's 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 pretty crazy, you know. So I've I've done I've done a deep dive into that, and um, you know, it's uh, it's all going to come out. All this is going to come out in my my book, my my forthcoming book. I have a I have a uh, uh, a book deal. Um, I'm finishing up a manuscript with uh, for Abrams Press. Um, which is uh, a major, major publisher. And I'm excited about it. It's, it's going to be a comprehensive uh, narrative nonfiction about, uh, about this, this era and um, all the different ins and outs and, you know, nuances and stories and characters. So incredible. (laughs) Congratulations. That's so exciting. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's definitely daunting. It's really, you know, it's one thing to do a self-published little book, that was supposed to be the first of many. Um, but, you know, it's another thing to have an actual, you know, a real, you know, an actual real publisher. As always, I am happy to share that this episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. Bookman's Entertainment Exchange sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more, and is a wonderful community-oriented store where the shelves are stocked with items brought in by the community. If you live in Arizona, support local business by shopping at Bookman's. And in addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. And Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling in trades. Bookman's also has some wonderful events planned for the month ahead. April 1st is Independent Bookstore Day Bookshelfie Contest. The featured local artist for the month of April is Cumulative, whose work you can see here in Tucson at the Midtown location. And also coming up in April is a virtual poetry reading with local poet Lara Garcia and the 36th annual Tucson Folk Festival, both on April 10th. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and details about events and to find your nearest location. And remember... Bookman's has cool covered. I looked at the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, and I noticed, and everybody else noticed, and you know, other people before me noticed, well, why is it that here was this all-black team and they only have two enshrinees in the Hall of Fame, but the teams that they routinely beat, like really beat down, have all these other players in trying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so a man named Howie Evans, who was a, a longtime um, journalist with the Amsterdam News, started a campaign in the 1960s lobbying um, the Hall of Fame to say, why, why don't you guys like recognize these earlier teams? And so the 1933 team ran 1932-33 team that won 88 straight games in 86 days was enshrined as a collective unit yeah right so they were enshrined as a a unit but that's not the same as the celtics were also enshrined as a unit and so were the you know buffalo germans who won the first you know gold medal in 1904 they were enshrined as a unit and so on but that doesn't mean you're recognizing the individuals and so then it took another 10 years 
to recognize almost 10 years um, to recognize the owner of the rent, Bob Douglas. And then it took almost another nearly 10 years to enshrine the first black individual player, which was, uh, which was Charles Tarzan Cooper. And it took almost another 10 years to, to you know, nearly to enshrine um, another individual African-American player, also from the Wrens, and that was uh, uh, William Pop Gates. And then it, and then it just took um, another 10 years, you know, so it's like one every 10 years. And meanwhile, they're enshrining right. unknown individuals, no, no disrespect, but, you know, some coach from Italy or somebody from Lithuania and somebody, nobody's even heard of these people. No, again, no, not, no disrespect intended, but compared to the history of basketball, um, like what's going on? And then the veterans, they used to have this thing called the veterans committee, which would, you know, you become a finalist and then you have to, you know, perform and jump through hoops for the, for the veterans committee. And if they know what, what you're even talking about, um, then, then you become a finalist and then eventually you go in front of this other committee. And it was just too convoluted and nobody knew anything about these pioneers. So eventually, um, and rightfully so, they, they, uh, the hall of fame created a committee, uh, which was called, um, the early African-American basketball pioneers uh, committee. And this committee would, whoever they selected would be, a, would be directly elected into the hall of fame. It didn't have to go through another committee and another committee of people that didn't even know anything about those individuals. And so since they did that, they've, they've now, and I've helped you know, advocate and uh, help them with information. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we've now advocated and gotten and, and been successful with nine uh, um, Hall of Fame enshrinements um, of early black basketball pioneers, you know, since they since they did that. And there's more, you know, that are deserving. But unfortunately, this year, last year was just doubly tragic, probably triply tragic, because whatever plans they had, then suddenly um, you had the tragic death of Kobe Bryant, his family members and teammates. And so they were going, they were planning to yeah. just honor only Kobe, because if you think about the Hall of Fame enshrinement, you, you couldn't not, you couldn't have Kobe and then just go on to the next person. Like it was just too devastating. Um, but then they couldn't even have that because of COVID. Um, so everything else got kind of put off. And so this, this, uh, African-American basketball pioneers committee didn't have an election and, you know, rightfully so like why it just doesn't, didn't make sense, you know? So all those things will work themselves out. Um, the hall of fame is open now. So, that, you know, I, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a great, uh, venue and, um, I know that they're safe and doing all the proper procedures. And so, you know, definitely go check them out if you can or check them out online. But, but, um, but yeah, so there's a lot, there's so much. This is all just the tip of the iceberg. Abigail. There's so much. I know. I know. I, I, I could ask you a million more questions. Okay. Well, great. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you. Um, and we will just, we'll be in touch Thank soon. You. Same to you. Uh, stay safe and, uh, right. and, and, and uh, stay well. Talk to you soon.